Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. I'm turning in the Bible to John, a chapter, the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. John 11 and 12, we're going to read uh, John's account of the triumphal entry, his account of Palm uh, Sunday. So if, uh, if you're willing and able, would you stand? We'll give our attention to God's word. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to you in love. John 11, starting at verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Skipping down to verse nine. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but not the Word of God. The Word of God stands forever. You may be seated, please. So a uh, 67-year-old woman went into the uh, uh, eye doctor to get a a routine surgery, 
And she wasn't complaining of anything uh, of, her, of her vision, really. It, most things felt uh, kind of normal to her. It was just kind of part of, the, uh, of her uh, aging and her sight, and she was going in. And, and, uh, and so they, uh, they began to, to, to prepare for the surgery, and they, they opened up her eye and, and, and pulled back her eyelid. And, and as they were doing that to, to put in the anesthesia, they noticed that there was this light blue blob. And so they, they, they pulled it out, and what they pulled out of her eye was 27 contact lenses. She had, for decades, been using monthly contacts, disposable contacts, and uh, she would uh, come to the time to change them out, and uh, they would, um, she'd be doing it, and she wouldn't be able to find one, and she'd think, well, it must have just fallen out on the ground. Uh, but over the years, they, they built up uh, in, her high, in her eye. She didn't even realize it. My kids, we went to the, to the uh, YMCA a couple weeks ago and, and went swimming in the pool, and we had gotten them new goggles for the season. And, you know, kids' uh, swimming goggles uh, have fun colors, and the, the lenses are different colors. And so one kid had yellow goggles, and one kid had uh, blue goggles, and... One kid had green goggles, and so uh, you could ask each one of them with their goggles on as they were swimming, what color is the water? And they would have said blue or green or yellow. Which one of them was right? In a sense, all of them. When I was in high school, I had a basketball coach who made fun of me for uh, having love handles. And um, also, I had a girlfriend who uh, dumped me for another guy who she, she said looked better with his shirt off. <laughs> can, I, can I be honest with you? Um, to this day, uh, no, matter, no matter what kind of shape I'm in, no matter how hard I work out, every time I walk by a mirror, or a reflective surface and, I, and see myself, very often, do you know what I see? I see a chubby high schooler with love handles. See, we all have lenses through which we view the world and interpret things. Sometimes we have lots of them. Sometimes we don't even realize that they're there. Some of them are, are, are pretty obvious, like uh, different colored goggles. Some of them come from places of deep pain. Our lenses affect the way that we view and interpret life. And our lenses also affect the way that we view and interpret Jesus. I was struck by this as I prepared this week, this idea of the lenses through which we see Jesus. Um, and in this passage, we, we see that. In this passage, we see that there are, uh, there are wrong lenses for viewing Jesus that there's a right lens for viewing Jesus, and then that, that there's a way to take off the wrong lenses and to put on the right lens. You got it? Three points. The wrong lenses for viewing Jesus, the right lens for viewing Jesus, and how do you take off the wrong lenses and put on the right lens? So, uh, first, um, what are the wrong lenses through which people view Jesus in this passage? In the life and ministry of Jesus, 
The triumphal entry is, is the apex of his popularity with the crowds, and at the same time, the apex of hatred of the religious leaders. This is as famous as Jesus will ever get. And at the same time, they're plotting to arrest him and uh, kill him. The religious, uh, the, 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 the crowds here have a lens for viewing Jesus, and the religious leaders have a lens for viewing Jesus. The religious leaders first view Jesus through the lens of their self-preservation. After Jesus, we read about how he um, had raised Lazarus, and after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the religious leaders got together, and uh, this is what they said. So the chief priests, the Pharisees gathered the council. They said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And most scholars think when it says there, they'll come away, come and take away our place. Most scholars think that they're referring to the temple. The temple is the place. Um, and that, that's probably true. But what are these religious leaders also saying? What do they fear? We're going to lose our place. We're going to lose our position. We're going to lose our power. We're going to lose this status quo um, that we're happy with. When Jesus uh, rode into Jerusalem, the crowds were swelling and the shouting, Hosanna. How did these religious leaders view it? The NIV translates it, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. This is getting us nowhere. The religious leaders could not see Jesus for who he truly was because they filtered everything through the lens of their own self-preservation. But it wasn't just a problem that is unique, was unique to them. It's our problem too, isn't it? If you're, um, if you're thinking about it, the primary lens that we all have because of sin, the primary thing that keeps us from viewing Jesus rightly is our preoccupation with ourselves. You know, think, think uh, when we wake up in the morning, what's the first, what are the first thoughts that run through our mind? Um, what am I going to do today? What am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? How is today going to go for me? I, 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 me, 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 the primary lens through which we filter the most basic decisions, where we live, what we will do with money, how we will spend time is the lens of self-preservation. But Jesus says there's a problem with that lens. What is the problem with that lens? He said, whoever loves his life, whoever filters everything through that lens of self-preservation, whoever loves his life actually loses it. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What happened to these religious leaders? How did this lens affect them? It made them fundamentally opposed to Jesus. It made them want to kill him. They would not bow their knee to him. In fact, not only him, they wanted to kill anyone who was associated with him, including Lazarus. The kingdom of self is diametrically opposed to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of self is diametrically opposed to the kingdom of God. In the preschool, 
uh, when, you know, these kids at three and four, they're trying to communicate to them uh, how to um, know Jesus and what happens when they sin and, and when they do wrong things. They use the language of being king, and they say, you have a throne on your heart, and uh, either you're going to allow Jesus to sit on that throne or you're going to sit on the throne. They'll say, are you trying to be the king of your own life right now? Are you trying to, to sit on the throne of your own heart? Or are you going to let Jesus be your king? Well, it's not just a question for preschoolers, is it? The lens of self-preservation is keeping some of you from bowing your knee to Jesus today. Whether it be for the first time or for the 20th time. I don't know what it is for you in your life, but you know. And if you're being honest, it feels that submitting to Jesus as king, submitting to Jesus' as lordship, feels like death. But actually, it's the only way to experience life. The religious leaders, they show us how we can, the group of people in this story, who view Jesus through wrong uh, lenses, and it's the crowds. The crowds wrongly view Jesus through the lens of their political and social agendas. What's going on in this passage with these crowds? Uh, We need a little bit of historical context. About 200 years before this, uh, the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, the, the, the Jews were ruled by the Greeks, and Antiochus Epiphanes rode into Jerusalem and sacked the city And he took a pig and slaughtered it on the altar. Think about what that would mean to Jewish people. And he took the rooms of the temple and turned them into rooms of prostitution. And as a result of this um, sacrilege, the Jewish people rose up and, and, uh, uh, and revolted, and they were led by a group called the Maccabees. And against all, all the odds, the Maccabees defeated the Greeks and won back the city of Jerusalem. And as the Maccabees were, were coming back into the city, claiming victory, they rode into Jerusalem and people met them waving palm branches. So palm branches had become this symbol of, of, of Jerusalem, uh, it, you know, uh, victory for the Israelites and victory for the Jewish uh, people. Now, 200 years later, the Jews are under the Romans, and Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem, and the people are waving palm branches, and they're shouting, Hosanna, which means save us, save us now, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is a quote from Psalm 118, but then they add to that quote, even the king of Israel. They see Jesus, like the Maccabees, riding into the city and coming to rescue them, coming to, to save them, um, to bring uh, victory over their oppressors. Uh, they, they, their waving of palm branches would be like us waving American flags. So the crowds view Jesus through the lens of their nationalism. They want a political savior. They wanted a militaristic Messiah. 
The, the, the crowds themselves uh, at this time, because of the Passover, swelled in size. So it would be two, three, four times the normal amount of people in the city, uh, hundreds of thousands, if, if maybe not even a million people uh, in the city for Passover. And so these crowds, these massive crowds, uh, full of enthusiasm, right, shouting, and, and, and it just really is like a, a, a tinderbox situation. Anything could just set it off and and, uh, and, and would turn into this massive thing, just like we had, right, we had the uh, rally at uh, the Capitol that turned into a riot. It's that kind of tense emotion uh, going on. The crowds filter Jesus through their agendas, and therefore they do not see him on his terms, they only see him on their own terms. Now, what about us? We never do that to Jesus, right? In his commentary on this passage, Gary Berge writes, he says, Palm Sunday is a happy day of flowers and dresses and new shoes, but another message carries a warning about our vision of Jesus as we celebrate. The crowd in Jerusalem had many who understood both the needs of the day and the charismatic power of Jesus. In some fashion, which perhaps they did not entirely understand, they assumed that Jesus and his movement would serve their cause. Their vision for society and Jesus' presence could together make changes that they dearly desired. In what manner do we likewise use Jesus to fuel our own visions for social and political change? Do we ever take up the name of Jesus and attach it to our own agendas? Jesus wants our praise and celebration, but too often we only see him through the issues of the day, issues about which we are confident he stands with us. So, so listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. There are some people who are confident that if Jesus walked through those doors right now, he would be wearing a Make America Great Again hat. And there are other people who are confident that if Jesus walked to those doors right now, he would be wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt. Both of those groups, both groups are wrong. Because both groups are viewing Jesus through the lens of their agenda. There is a God that we want and there is a God who is, and the two are not the same. Now, is it wrong to have a political or a social view? No. It's not wrong to have a political or a social lens. But what's the, when does it become a problem? So we live in Florida, and uh, when, you, when you live in Florida, you quickly learn that you need a good pair of sunglasses. Like, this is not the time to go to Howard's Flea Market and get the five for, you know, 20 deal. Like, you need a good pair of sunglasses, and every good pair of sunglasses has the same thing in common. They have multiple layers, right? There's a protective layer, and there's a polarizing layer, and there's a tinted layer, and, and there's the actual glass. There's, there's multiple layers, right? And so, in the same way, we very often through various circumstances and who we are, we have multiple lenses through which we view things. And one of those could be a political or a social 
lens. When does it become a problem? It becomes a problem when it becomes the first lens. When your first lens is that and you filter everything first through that, right? Or maybe sometimes it's your only lens that you filter things uh, through. And how would you know? How, how, would you, how can you tell if you're doing this, if you're viewing Jesus through the lens of your agenda? Well, it's actually in this passage. It's enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. Now, enthusiasm in and of itself isn't a bad thing, but it's interesting that when our agendas become the lens through which we filter everything else, the result is almost always an over-the-top enthusiasm. The crowds were enthusiastic, right? They were shouting, Hosanna, king of, the king is here. Likewise, people can get disproportionately passionate about their particular agenda, and it always leads to division. It leads to you're either for us or you're against us. If you don't think my way, vote my way, see things my way, then you must not be a follower of Jesus. But what happened to these crowds? What happened to the enthusiasm that these crowds had? When Jesus didn't do what they wanted him to do, what did they do with their enthusiasm? They turned it on him. Just conjecture, but some of the people who were there shouting Hosanna as Jesus rode into Jerusalem five days later were shouting what? Crucify him. They turned their enthusiasm against him when he refused to fulfill their agenda. The triumphal entry shows us that we too easily and too often view Jesus through the wrong lenses of self-preservation and our political or social agendas. So second then, what is the right lens? If those are the wrong lenses for viewing Jesus, what is the right lens through which we should view him? Jesus wants us to view him through the lens of his humility the lens of his humility. Look again at the text. It says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming. So they took branches of palm trees. They went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And so Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now notice what Jesus does and doesn't do. Jesus doesn't rebuke the crowds for calling him king. Jesus doesn't repudiate the title of king. Jesus does correct their understanding of his kingship. Jesus is, in a sense, his own public relations firm. Right? This is an incredibly intentional act on his Part. If you think about it, nowhere else in the gospel accounts are we ever told that Jesus rode anything. Jesus walked everywhere. He walked probably hundreds of miles uh, through Israel during his life and, and ministry. Um, we're never told that he rode anything. And, uh, and so this last trip into Jerusalem, they, they come to the Mount of Olives. And, uh, and some of you have been there. You can stand on the Mount of Olives, and, and at the Mount of Olives you can see the entire city. And, and it goes down into a valley and comes up. And at most, at most, you're probably maybe two miles to walk from the top of the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. So why, at this point, does Jesus stop and say, 
now I'm going to ride, and I'm going to ride a donkey. Because he's saying something, right? He's saying, I am the king. I am the one who Zechariah promised, uh, prophesied about. The prophecy said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This king, what will he do? He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. He will cut off the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be cut off. He'll speak peace to the nations. His rule will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As we said earlier in the service, Jesus did not ride into Jerusalem on a war horse. He rode in humbly on a donkey. Have you ever seen someone riding a donkey? Uh, and, and, and not only is it a donkey, the passage says it's a young donkey. It's a, uh, it's a colt. And so just, I mean, try to visualize a grown man riding a young donkey. It, it looks silly. Jesus came to establish a worldwide kingdom of grace and peace. And that kingdom did not come through power, did not come through pomp and circumstance or force, it came through humility. Jesus wasn't riding into Jerusalem to take life. He was riding into Jerusalem to give his life. You remember what we read? Uh, it said some Greeks came to Philip. Philip went to Andrew. Philip and Andrew went to Jesus and, and said, they want to see you. And Jesus said, here's the lens, here's the right lens to, to see me. He said um, to uh, Philip, and Andrew, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is the grain of wheat. He is the one that must die. He must go into the ground, and through his death and resurrection, he will be glorified. And he will establish an eternal kingdom. That's what makes the triumphal entry triumphal, is his humility, his humility that, that went to the point of death, even death on a cross. The right lens through which we should see him is the lens of his humility. They discovered um, some time ago uh, uh, a uh, drawing that they think goes back to uh, the late first century. They call it the Alexamenos Graffito. And uh, here's what it looks like. You can see the, the actual drawing on the left uh, and something to, to make it easier for you to see on the right. And uh, this is a Roman, uh, maybe a Roman soldier or a Roman perso person worshiping someone who's on a cross, who has the body of a human but the head of a donkey. And all scholars believe that this is someone who was trying to mock Christians saying, look at you Christians, you, this is the God you worship, the donkey king who was crucified. Who would worship someone like that? What kind of king is that? There was a movie that came out in 1992. The movie was called Hero. And the main character in the movie uh, was Dustin Hoffman. And uh, here's, here's from the movie what he looks like. Uh, the, the plot of the movie is, is uh, Dustin Hoffman plays the, the role of Bernie LaPlante. And, uh, and, and Bernie is this ordinary, unimpressive guy 
but just happens to be driving by at the same time that a plane crashes. And uh, the plane is um, crashed and burning, and Bernie gets out of his car, uh, and, uh, and the people are like yelling, save me, save me. And he's like, hold on, taking his shoes off. He's like, these are $100 shoes. Hold on. He's taking them off. And, uh, and he jumps in, and he saves 55 people. And, uh, but, but no one knows who he is. He leaves the scene, and, uh, and no one ever knows who it was that came and did it. And so the media go on this search. They offer a million-dollar reward to try and figure out who was this hero who saved all these people. And um, uh, because Bernie is, is so unheroic and so unimpressive, uh, who do they find? They actually find someone else who's good-looking, um, who's impressive, uh, who uh, seems to fit the, uh, the roles photogenic and attractive. They convince themselves that he's the one who actually saved them. When in reality, it was Bernie, the normal, ordinary, humble guy. There's a book called, uh, Mark Twain wrote a book called Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. And the book's a comedy. It's about a, uh, an ordinary guy in the uh, 1800s who is transported back in time to, the, to medieval times and to King Arthur's time. And he meets King Arthur and he uh, goes on quest with him and, and he, he convinces the king to dress up in commoner's clothes and to go about his kingdom to try to interact with his people. And, and most of the interactions that he has are, are, are comedic because the king, as hard as he tries, he just can't be normal. He can't, you know, interact with the common people. But there is one chapter... Uh, called the smallpox hut, in which the Yankee and King Arthur go to this hut, and and uh, and in the hut they they hear a woman crying out in pain and, and crying out for help, and and it's dark inside the hut, and so the the Yankee goes and, and gets some water for her and, and and brings some water, and and as he's giving her this bowl of water, light comes into the room, and he sees it that she has smallpox. And he says to, to King Arthur, flee, get out of here. Death is here. There's no place for you. And the king says, no, I'm, I'm coming in. And the woman, her husband had already died. And her daughter was up in the loft. And it had been days since she had heard or seen anything of her. So she asked the king, would you be willing to go up there and, and bring me news of what's up there, no matter what the news is? And so the king goes off into the loft. And, uh, and this is what Twain writes from the perspective of this Connecticut Yankee. He says, there was a slight noise from the direction of the dim corner where the ladder was. It was the king descending. I could see that he was bearing something in one arm and assisting himself with the other. He came forward into the light. Upon his breast lay a slender girl of 15. She was but half conscious. She was dying of smallpox. Here was heroism at its last and loftiest possibility, its utmost summit. This was challenging death in the open field, unarmed, with all the odds against the challenger, no reward set upon the contest, no admiring world in silks and cloth of gold to gaze and applaud. Yet the king's bearing was as serenely brave as it had always been in those cheaper contests where night meets night in equal fight and clothed in protecting steel. 
Here, uh, he was great now, sublimely great. The rude statues of his ancestors in his palace should have an addition. I would see to that. And it would not be a mailed king killing a giant or a dragon like the rest. It would be a king in commoner's garb bearing death in his arms that a peasant mother might look her last upon her child and be comforted. I love that. It would be a king in commoner's garb bearing death in his arms. That's your king. That's Jesus who humbled himself, took on flesh, went to the cross to defeat death. The king in commoner's garb bearing death in his arms. The Jews, they came to Jerusalem to prepare for the Passover. In the Passover, they would have a lamb, and the lamb would be slaughtered for their sins. Jesus rides into Jerusalem to be the lamb, the one who will be slaughtered for the sins of his people. He will take on death and defeat it. Jesus wants us to view him not through the lens of self-preservation, not through the lens of our agendas, but through the lens of his humility, through the lens of his death. So then finally, how do we take off the wrong lenses and put on the right lens? How do we take off the wrong lenses and put on the right lens? Look again at verse uh, 16. During the triumphal entry, it says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, that's shorthand for his death and resurrection. When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. At first, the disciples didn't get it, right? They didn't see it. Uh, they didn't have the right lens to understand what was taking place. But then after Jesus' death and resurrection, then all of a sudden, they saw it. They got it. So what happened? What made the difference? Did they just think about it long enough and put it all together? Uh, is it like a, you know, a scientist working on a really long equation problem and all the way finally working at it hard enough that they figured it out. How, is that, no, it's not how it happened. Jesus himself told them how it would happen. Just days after the triumphal entry, when they had shared the Last Supper together, he had washed their feet. Jesus said to them, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. It takes the Holy Spirit to take off our wrong lenses and put on the right lens. It's not just that we need to order a new pair of contacts. We need cataract surgery. We need the miraculous work of God. So what does it practically look like? How do you do it? It looks like every day at the beginning of your day, in the middle of your day, at the end of your day, saying, Holy Spirit, I am constantly tempted to view things through the wrong lenses. I need you to give me the right lens. I need you to correct my vision. Remind me of, of how Jesus humbled himself. Remind me of the truths of the gospel. Show them to me again. God, I don't want to use you for my ends. I want you to use me for your ends. 
It's through constant surrender to the Holy Spirit's control that we put on the lens of faith. It's also through practicing the ordinary means of grace, prayer, the word, corporate worship. So what have we seen in this passage? We've seen the wrong lenses for viewing Jesus. We've seen the right lens for viewing Jesus. And we've seen how we can take off the wrong lenses and put on the right lens. The triumphal entry is such a critical, such an important um, uh, element of the life of Christ. In fact, it's one of only about a dozen events that are recorded in all four Gospels. Only about 12 events that, that are recorded in all four Gospels. Each one of the uh, Gospels, when it comes to the triumphal entry, adds something unique. They talk about the donkey and the donkey's owner or the, the crowds or or about what Jesus said. But do you know what stood out to me about John's account of the triumphal entry? The reason why I chose John's account to preach on is because of what the Pharisees say in verse 19. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The whole world has gone after him. In that moment, that's what it felt like to them. Right? It felt like to them the whole world was going after him, but they spoke better than they knew, didn't they? Their words were not just hyperbole, they were prophecy. Because 2,000 years later, people from all over the world worship this one who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. They celebrate Palm Sunday in Colombia. They celebrate Palm Sunday in Iraq. They celebrate Palm Sunday in Lebanon. They celebrate Palm Sunday in Mozambique. They celebrate Palm Sunday in Pakistan. They celebrate Palm Sunday in Paraguay. They celebrate Palm Sunday in the Philippines. They celebrate Palm Sunday in Poland. They celebrate Palm Sunday in Spain. They celebrate Palm Sunday in Syria. So the question is, will we celebrate it here in Citrus County? Holy Spirit, take away all the wrong lenses that keep us from seeing Jesus rightly. Give us the lens of faith so that we might worship the one who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey as the king of the universe. We do that now. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org. 